I'm going to tell you something. This is me just kind of admitting to you some things. Uh, we don't necessarily look forward to what is to come as a, as a church staff. Here's what I mean by that. We, uh, we understand that really today's the last day we have your undivided attention until the end of the year. Because right now your brain is starting to think about the Thursday feast and you're starting, if you're like my neighborhood and like my wife, have determined that now is the day of Christmas decoration and so you're starting to do all of that and you're thinking about the events that are coming uh, in, the, in the coming months or coming weeks and, and uh, we just know that, I, I, please don't take this the wrong way, you're not thinking anymore. After today, you're not going to think anymore so we, don't, we never announce to you a new event uh, during the month of December. We just don't. If there's something coming in January, we get, begin to promote it in October. Why? Because you're not thinking. Uh, you're, you're, it's just not going to register. It's not, it's not going to compute. So, so you know, we're going to give you permission to just be distracted and uh, slave to your holiday impulses, more or less, for the next several weeks. But today is a day where we think we have your attention. And we want to use today to reflect back on something that happened two years ago today. Two years ago today, our church family got together and we overwhelmingly affirmed that we believed that God was calling us as a church who feels called of God to tell people everywhere and teach people everywhere what it means to be a follower of Jesus using the five habits of a Jesus follower, to do that through establishing campuses locally and planning autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally by 2028, which is our 50th anniversary. And then a year ago today, a year ago today, we began to give over and above our regular giving to the Multiply 2028 campaign, which was designed to fund our, our first multiplication initiatives and then retire our indebtedness so that we free up in our budget, about a quarter of a million dollars a year that would allow us to be able to say yes to whatever multiplication opportunity that God would bring our way. We started that a year ago today. And so what we want to do on this particular Sunday for the next several years is just look back on where we have come from and look ahead to what God might be calling us to do. Today we get to celebrate Multiply 2028, and we're going to do that by taking a walk through a brief chapter or a brief uh, passage of scripture in the book of Acts. So why don't you find, if you brought your Bible, to uh, find the book of Acts, find chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Yes, we are stepping away from the book of Romans for uh, the next several weeks through the end of the year. Next week we start, and as much as this sounds crazy, next week's the first Sunday of Advent. So we start our Advent series next week, uh, and we'll be in the book of Luke for the majority of our time in December. But today we're going to, as we reflect on Multiply 2028 and celebrate what God has done, look at Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, which begins ominously and frankly a little weirdly. It says, and Saul, Saul is the Aramaic version of the man Paul, who we know from uh, the rest of Scripture, wrote the book of Romans, was inspired by God to write most of the New Testament. This man, known by his Aramaic name, Saul, approved of his execution. And we ask, what? What's going on here? That seems very out of context. Well, let me just say to you, that is not Luke who authored the book of Acts. That is not his fault. 
The reason that Luke 8 begins with this very out-of-context phrase is because a guy you've never heard of named Stephen Langdon got this idea that it would be really cool to add chapters to the Bible at about 1,200 or so. Verses came 300 years after that. So Langdon, for whatever reason, thought, I'm going to put the phrase, and Saul approved of his execution at the beginning of chapter 8, instead at the end of chapter 7, which, for my money, he should have done. Because now I have to explain to you what he meant by all of that. So what is it here that Paul is approving of? What execution? And to know that, you have to go back to uh, Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to a man named Stephen. Stephen had been a Hellenistic Jew. Now what does that mean? It means that he was someone who practiced the Jewish religion, but he was not ethnically Jewish. So he believed in the God of the Old Testament. He was faithful to the covenants of the Old Testament, but he was not ethnically Jewish. And the Hellenistic Jews were viewed as really second or third cousins to the the ethnically pure Jews, and they were not really really incorporated into the the full worship of God in the temple. But this Hellenistic Jew named Stephen came to see that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah and he had come to save him as well. And he got so passionate and he got so excited about that truth that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, came to save people like him that he began to share with his Hellenistic Jewish brothers that he had found the Jewish Messiah. And he did this really obnoxious thing, at least from their perspective, to prove that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He used the Old Testament that they considered to be their holy scriptures. And he used the Old Testament, their holy scriptures, to prove something being true that they had categorically rejected. Now, I want you to stop and think with me what it would be like if someone could, they can't, but if someone could come to you with your scriptures, the Old and New Testament, the Bible, and prove to you something that you had categorically rejected. What would it be like? Well, it would prompt defensiveness. It would prompt, uh, to use big words, an existential crisis. You would think, what is going on here? But honestly, because you're a human being, I'm a human being, I'd get ticked. I'd get angry. How dare you do that? And rather than deal with the truth, you'd just begin to attack the person who shared the truth with you. And that's what those Hellenistic brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith began to do. They began to attack Stephen, and they began to say that Stephen is blaspheming God. Uh, Stephen is blaspheming the law of Moses, and he is saying that, the, that through Christ the temple will be torn down. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it should Because those were the same charges that were brought against Jesus. And what happened as a result of those charges having been brought to Jesus? Well, he was crucified. And so when when Stephen is called in to answer to the Jewish leadership about these charges, he's a dead man walking and he knows it. He knows he's not getting out of that meeting alive. But rather than beg for his life, he confidently and boldly once again proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ using the Old Testament scriptures to the highest of the high in Jewish leadership. And then he added this little flourish to the end. He said, no, by the way, you are all under judgment for rejecting the Jewish Messiah. Well, they went berserk, and they did what he anticipated that they would do. And they drug him out into the street, and they stoned him until dead. And that is the execution. 
that Paul affirmed and approved. And then it opened a Pandora's box, as it were. Look at the rest of verse 1. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, except the apostles. Now, we think that Luke is subtly telling us here that there was a nuance to the persecution. We think that Luke is saying to us that it wasn't a persecution of the entire church, but it was a persecution of the Hellenistic Christians who had left the Jewish faith to respond to Jesus as as the Messiah. The reason we think that that's a possibility is because he says that the apostles were not scattered or apart of that, that persecution. The apostles were men who were ethnically Jewish and had affirmed Jesus as the Messiah, but the people really wouldn't allow an outright persecution of their ethnically Jewish brothers and sisters who believed Jewish uh, Jesus was the Messiah at the time, but they had no compunction whatsoever of going after the Gentiles who were affirming Jesus as, as Savior from the Jewish faith. And so it's in all likelihood a mixture of racial hatred and a whole war by the Jews that is opening the door to the first persecution of Christians. This is the first time the word persecution is used in the book of Acts. Now verse 3 tells us that some devout godly men took Stephen's body and buried it, but then the story picks back up with Saul again in verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, we might think he just had them put into prison, but there's a trigger here in Luke's language that lets us know that it's more than just bringing them to jail. That word ravage means to injure or do physical harm. And so these Christians were being drug out of their homes into the street, men and women. They were being violently assaulted and thrown into prison. And because of what had just happened to Stephen, we assume that many of them were facing loss of life as well. And this was what Saul was actually doing. This one who Jesus ultimately saved and helped use to establish the church all around the world at first was a man whose zeal for the Jewish faith caused him to think nothing at all of killing someone who knew Jesus as Savior. Well, here's what it says in verse 4. This persecution hits the city of Jerusalem, and it scatters the, the Christians in Jerusalem. They take what they have, and they run for the hills. And so we see in verse 4 that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So, so these who admittedly were gathering what little they had and running from the city of Jerusalem for their lives, went proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, allowing the message of Jesus to fall from their lips wherever it is that they might ultimately find themselves. I want you to think about that for a moment and compare that to our situation. It's no secret that Christianity has lost its most favored religion status in the world in which we live. It is frequently attacked, although I will remind you that for the next six weeks you're going to turn on TV about any night and you're going to hear songs of your Savior sung on broadcast television. So let's not get too carried away treating ourselves like first century martyrs uh, because we're being inconvenienced a little bit. But we've lost, there's no secret, we've lost 
that, that most favored religion status. And what that has caused us to want to do, it has caused us to, to want to retreat and gather around uh, friendly faces. And we almost speak in code to one another. And we are certainly very, very cautious in what we might say that would flag us about a Christian in our social circles or in our uh, vocational circles. We're very, very cautious about that. Compare that to these who running for their lives, rather than retreat and blend in, everywhere they went said, look, someone new to share the gospel of Jesus with. Isn't that something? And Luke, again, the author of the book of Acts, zeroes in on one of those. His name is Philip, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. And then it says, saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. See, our attention falls on verse 7 and the miracles. But the readers of Acts originally would have had their attention fall on the message of the gospel because the miracles that are talked about in verse 7 are actually confirming signs that what Paul or excuse me what Philip was saying or preaching to the Sumerians were true in fact in Luke's language the word miracle actually means sign it points to something else so these signs are merely confirming events that the gospel that Philip was preaching was true and everybody in this city who had felt, honestly, like second-class citizens by the ethnically pure Jews who worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem, heard this man who was one of them, essentially, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, came to save you as well, and they couldn't get enough of it. And many responded because we see in verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. I want you to stop and think with me for just a moment about that moment you came to know Christ as Savior. Now, for many of us, we were so squeaky clean in our own minds when we came to Jesus as Savior that it really was more than anything else, just kind of cultural moment where I became more of a grown-up kid or whether uh, you know, I, I became uh, someone who affirmed the faith of my parents. But make no mistake about it, we've learned about it in Romans 1 through 3. Every single one of us is hopelessly lost because of, because of our sin and worthy of the judgment of God. So with that in mind, think about that moment that you were saved. Think about that moment that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Think about the joy you felt. And that is shared by an entire population of people who are finding out that in Jesus Christ, everyone has hope. And thus ends this little snapshot of the early church in Acts 8, 1 through 8. Beyond just giving us some insight into how the gospel spread out of Jerusalem in the early years of Christianity, what might this little passage show us about where we've come as a church in our efforts to become a multiplying church and where we might go. I think it gives us some lessons that can be extraordinarily helpful to us in 
thinking what the past few years have been about and where we might be going. So let me give you three things here as we kind of apply what we have just learned. First, these verses illustrate for us that we multiply through difficulty. Listen very closely. We multiply through difficulty. I am known in our family for when vacations come or we celebrate the holidays together to taking video of everyone and then putting them together in an Oscar-worthy, complete with a soundtrack presentation that I present to my family and they love it. They really do. They think it's fantastic. They can't get enough of it. That's the reason they say when I want to show it to them, Dad, really. They, what they really mean is they're super excited to see what I've put together for them. You will never see them yourselves. I want to make that clear. But they're spectacular. Anyway, a few, few months back, my daughter, Abby, and her husband, Alex, were in from Minnesota. And because of everything that had happened... Abby had not been able to see the video I made for our uh, Christmas celebration in, in 2019, which was a big, big deal for us because it was the, the year that Abby and Alex found out that Caleb and Danny were going to have a, a baby, and Abby found out that the, the baby, my granddaughter, would have her same middle name, and I got all, her finding that, all of that, you know, tears and weepiness and all that stuff I love. Um, had that on video. She'd never seen it. And so I showed it to them, and when it ended, Abby, unprompted, said, and three months later, the world ended. And when she said that, it resonated because, frankly, when I was putting, putting it together, I, I recognized that this is my last little touchstone into what life was like for our family before COVID hit. And it's weird to think about how different things are. But then I began to think about, as I was putting it together, that just a month before the events in this video, we had come together as a church, and we had said that we believe that God is calling us to become a multiplying church. And then four months later, at that point, the world came unglued. In fact, it came unglued with, with such speed that I will never forget that on March the 8th, 2020, I was at the Ridgeview campus, and after church, I met with about 40 of our members over there, and explained to them the Multiply 2028 campaign, which is that over and above giving thing that we started a year ago this particular day, and that that was the last time I saw anybody from Blue Valley Baptist Church for three months, and I had no idea. No idea. Let, let me tell you what the last 20 or so months have felt like as, as one of the pastors of this church. It's felt like our number one goal is just trying to keep the whole thing moving in the same direction, just holding it together with all of the unrest that we've experienced and, and all of uh, those things that find their way into, into the church. It's just felt like we're trying to hold the whole thing together. And I've had people say to me, had you known in November of 2019 what the next two years were going to hold, would you have led us to adopt the multiply vision. And first of all, you need to understand that wouldn't have been just up to me. That would have been a staff-informed, elder-led, elder-communicated decision to you. But I did advise it. And I'd love to stand before you and say, I'm so super holy and spiritual that I would have said, absolutely, let's go. But the flesh in me has to admit that had I known 
I would have figured out some spiritual sounding way to say it's not the Lord's time. And what in that season of difficulty would we have missed? We would have missed the launch of Missio Esperanza, which is our Hispanic language ministry that has started the last couple of months out of the Ridgeview campus. We would not be looking forward to, in a few weeks, construction beginning on our first international church plant in Brazil. We would not have people like the Finleys here who, though we had to reset our efforts uh, under, uh, under Alan's leadership to uh, bring us to uh, uh, an autonomous church plant here locally, um, if, if it had not been for the past couple of years, we wouldn't have had him here, we wouldn't have had his family here, we wouldn't have had accumulated resources in that time that put us in a better financial situation than we could have possibly imagined to actually be able to launch that. We would have missed all of those things had we said no because of difficulty. Frequently difficulty for us causes us to step back from faithfulness. But God sometimes uses difficulty, even persecution, as the means for spreading his word to the world. We multiply, not through everything measuring up from an earthly perspective, we multiply through, many times, difficulty. We also multiply by sending people out. By sending people out. When we were in the final stages of finalizing all of this at staff retreat with our staff and elder leadership, one of the questions that came up about the, you know, establishing campuses locally and planning autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally, one of the things that came up was, how are we going to measure all this? Because a vision needs measurables. If you're in the business world, you know that. How do we measure all this? So are we going to say, we're going to plant this many campuses and we're going to plant this many autonomous churches? And you need to understand that theologically, our church leadership has a problem with setting any kind of goal like that. Because our sole responsibility is faithfulness. And the results are up to the Lord. And so we have never set numerical goals. And we've never said this many equals anything. We've never done that. But... Measurables are important. So how, I was asked, are we going to measure this? And I will tell you, in my heart, this is how I'm going to measure whether we are a multiplying church when we gather on this Sunday seven years from now. It's whether or not multiplication has found its way into our DNA. And by that, I mean it just becomes impossible to conceive of us as a church without that multiplication bent. And here is how I'm praying that the Lord will show me that that has happened. You're not going to like what I'm about to say. I am praying for at least one of you, this campus or the other campus, to set under this multiplication vision and begin to feel a restlessness in your spirit from God that causes you to say, you know, I may be an engineer or a police officer or an insurance salesman. That may be always how I make my money, but I believe God has put me here on earth to plant a church somewhere. And I believe that I'm being called to plant that church maybe in another part of our state or another part of our region, another part of our nation, another part 
of our world. And you're going to, I'm going to pray that, that somebody stirred in that way comes to us and says, help me, equip me uh, to, to be ready to do that kind of thing. And that you get so excited about what God is calling you to do that you begin to talk to your Sunday school class and your peer group here at Blue Valley Baptist Church. And they think, you know what? We're in on that too. I mean, it'd be called to lead it as a, as a church planter, but, but I'm willing to relocate my life with you to establish the church in a place that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I am praying. You need to know this. I am praying for you. I am praying for your children. I'm praying for your grandchildren. I'm praying for my children at Blue Valley, my grandchildren at Blue Valley, to think I may make my living somewhere else, but I'm going. I'm being sent out. See, out here in the suburbs, we can write the check for other people to go. That means nothing. I'm praying, I'm praying some of us pack up and leave because we multiply by sending people out, not just funding it. And then finally, we multiply for the joy of the nations. We, we do this so that like the city of Samaria who hears of Jesus, Lives are forever changed, and joy is a result. At my previous church that I pastored in northeastern Oklahoma, there was a godly couple, Hugh and Dee Morgan. I mean, they were, they were sent from heaven if anybody was. I mean, you just want to kind of shield yourself when you talk to them, lest they look you right in the eye, fire fall from heaven, and you be consumed. I mean, they were godly, godly people. And they had a daughter who at an early age, felt a call to foreign missions and married a young man who had a call to foreign missions. And they spent their entire adult life undercover sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people of China. In fact, Julie and I went to China in 2006 and they were our in-country contact. They were there then. And I, I had the privilege of performing the funeral services for both Hugh and D separately. They died about a year apart. And I was walking through the foyer of our church with one of our associate pastors, and I was looking at the pictures that the family had set up, uh, helping us remember Hugh and D's life. We've all seen those kinds of things. And the associate pastor and I were looking at this birthday celebration, and that Christmas celebration, and that Thanksgiving celebration, and noticing that the daughter and her husband weren't in hardly any of those pictures. They had missed all of these big, big events. And our associate pastor, Jerry, said to me, that's the cost. That's the cost. But then it occurred to both of us that Hugh and Dee wouldn't have counted it a cost at all. Sure, they would have said, we missed some birthdays and some Thanksgivings and some Christmases. But because of my daughter and her husband's obedience, countless people who would have never heard the name of Jesus heard it. And that brought them, not look at us, we're martyrs, it brought them joy knowing that they shared in the giving of joy to people who needed that gospel joy that we so often take for granted. We do this not so we can say to the world, look at Blue Valley. Look at all of the church planters we have sent out. Look at all of the congregations and campuses that we've established. We do this so that there will be more people at the feet of the throne of Jesus for eternity. That's why we do this. 
We do this for the joy of the nations. So what's our takeaway here? What do we do with this on this day? Well, it should come as no surprise to you on the year anniversary of our our beginning to give and to fund the Multiply ministry that I want to encourage you now through the end of the year to pray about what the Lord would have you to give to Multiply 2028 over and above your regular giving. And I said this before I left on sabbatical. Some of you thought it was a key indicator of why I needed to go on sabbatical. But here I am all rested up saying the same thing again. Here's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that all of the debt is retired by December the 31st. We have about $1.6 million left. We've paid off about 400000 or so, half a million, somewhere in that ballpark over the last year. You're saying, Derek, that's crazy. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but here's what I know. I know that those resources exist at Blue Valley. Through small giving and large giving, I know that that could happen. And if we were to pay all of that off January 1st, from that point forward, we'd be in a position to be able to say yes to whatever opportunity God presented to us to multiply. That's, that's part of what I want us to consider, how we might give. But I also want us to consider my prayer for being made restless. I want us to consider whether or not God might be calling you to remain a, an insurance salesman, an engineer, a police officer, but plant a church and go somewhere with someone to help them plant a church, which we're all better equipped to do because of COVID anyway. Many of us have figured out that we can do our job remotely. We can do our job from anywhere in the world. That's what COVID has taught us. And maybe you can do your job from anywhere in the world, but plant a church. And along those lines, I want to share with you a prayer that I have had on my computer desktop now for a couple of years, and I'm holding on to it for the right moment. But here it is. It's a prayer pen, or it's a prayer pen by Adoniram Judson, who by way of reminder, is my hero of the faith, the first missionary from American shores and the namesake of my grandson, Judson. Here's what he prayed. O God of mercy, have mercy on the churches in the United States. Hold back judgment from them, he prayed 200 years ago. He said, continue and perpetuate the heavenly revivals of religion which they have begun to enjoy. This was written not long after the great awakenings and so all of that was going on may that continue but then he said this and may the time soon come when no church shall dare to sit under sabbath and sanctuary privileges without having one of their number to represent them on heathen ground let me put that in language that we can understand he was praying god may there soon come a time when there's not a single church in america that gathers on Sunday morning and doesn't have someone from their number preaching the gospel to bring joy to the nations. That's what I'm praying for us. I'm praying that many of us are called to that work. And with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer.